As we are trying to wrap our heads around living, working and socializing in a post-pandemic world, things can get confusing. How do you navigate and ultimately master the new normal? In our AdSmart podcast series in association with PGM Investments, we want to shine a light on how investors can make the most of the current circumstances. We'll be joined by a range of investment experts from PGM to get a better understanding of the opportunities the new normal offers to investors worldwide. I'm Valentina Romeo, Deputy Editor for CityWire Engage, and for this episode, I'm joined by Thomas Davis, Managing Director and Global Equity Portfolio Manager at Jenison Associates, PGIM's Fundamental Equity Manager, to discuss about what PGIM calls the next economy. Tom, thank you for your time today. Hi, Valentina. Pleasure to be here. Tom, you build portfolios from the bottom up, but what key secular growth themes have been important so far this year? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and 2020 has certainly been a year uh, like no other due to the pandemic. Uh, the need to stay at home for extended periods of time, to avoid yeah. crowds, to close offices has, has really turned uh, a lot of things upside down for, for the past eight or nine months. Um, but we see a couple really important underlying trends here um, that continue to work extremely well in the marketplace uh, and that uh, are, are proving to be remarkably durable um, given, uh, given what we're seeing. Uh, they really relate to the digitalization trends out there in the economy, which have been in place and growing for a number of years, but which have really just exploded uh, in 2020 as, as a result of the pandemic, believe it or not. Uh, disruptive companies that were challenging traditional industries pre-pandemic are really managing through this current crisis relatively well. Uh, and we think they're likely to emerge at the other side as long-term growth leaders uh, that continues, uh, continues on with the same sort of track record here. You know, within the concept of digitalization, there's really two sub, sub areas. One is the digitalization of the consumer uh, embodied by the concept of direct to consumer um, commerce. So think about e-commerce marketplaces with many merchants, um, you know, e-commerce platforms uh, or e-commerce sites for individual companies. Uh, and, and the entire ecosystem out there that is related to e-commerce, the uh, companies that help enable e-commerce software companies with website and online storefront design capabilities, uh, companies uh, that help with the payments, digital payments that are required in e-commerce, um, helping merchants with logistics, operations management, all these related companies in the e-commerce ecosystem um, that operate in the digital world have all seen dramatic increases in their business activity this year as consumers shifted their spending uh, on everything from groceries to personal care, um, to every household items, even, even pet supplies online in order to avoid having to go out to a physical store. Uh, and the ease of having all this stuff shipped to your doorstep um, has really become a, a significant solution to the extended periods of shutdowns. Um, you know, just in the U.S. alone, there, there's, it's interesting, uh, there was an estimate that e-commerce penetration is going to average about 20% for this uh, calendar year 2020. And that's up wow. from about 15% a year ago. Uh, and if we were having this conversation back in January, pre-pandemic, mm. uh, the, the, the forecast, the prediction, the estimate for 2020 would have had us at a penetration rate of a little less than 17%. The second piece is the digitalization of the enterprise. Um, corollary to the, to the consumer side. But on the enterprise side, uh, we've seen another massive area of growth this year, 
uh, one that had already begun in previous years, but which has dramatically accelerated this year. Uh, and with this, I'm talking about really the cloud um, and software capabilities that now reside outside of the physical premises of a company, but that manage or monitor technology infrastructure, um, provide seamless and integrated communication systems, uh, customer engagement analysis, uh, team collaborations among employees, document flow and document management. Uh, just to mention a few that, that are now being offered to businesses around the world uh, through the cloud, through the internet, um, and are enabling them to continue operating even as employees have remained at home, working from home offices uh, or even converted bedrooms. Um, and you know, we've seen a lot of growth here this year, um, but we think that this is still even just barely making a dent in the overall addressable marketplace. Um, these are trends that, that had been in place, but have really accelerated this year and will likely continue to be really, really significant, very important trends um, in the years to come as, as you really address this on a global scale. If we look at now at technology, even before the new normal, Technology has been the most successful play for fund managers for a while. Uh, this is widely expected to continue, but how can we evaluate if tech and tech-related firms are good investment opportunities in the years to come? Can this be a repeat of the 2000 bubble, for example? You're right. Technology has been a, a really great place now for over a decade um, for investors. Um, but I also, I would suggest, uh, and I believe that, that we're actually in the midst of one of the biggest periods of, of technological innovation and disruption, probably in a generation, um, you know, all brought about by things like uh, the internet, um, the smartphone, broadband internet capability, wirelessly to the home, um, uh, the advent of the cloud, the development of e-commerce, social media platforms, uh, e-commerce marketplaces, uh, and now uh, cloud-based software. And this, this is all part of a huge um, period of innovation and, and disruption, probably not the likes that we've seen in, in well over a generation, at least at this magnitude. And I think honestly, despite this going on now for about a decade, I think we're still in the relatively early innings, um, given the duration, the scale of the opportunity is, is so large and, and has frankly, probably even today been underestimated. Uh, you know, with new technologies that are truly value adding and disruptive, it can really be a winner take all situation. And, and the first mover gains massive market share in very short timeframes, making it nearly impossible for additional competitors to emerge. Uh, you know, think about the smartphones uh, in the introduction of the smartphone back in 2007. Uh, yeah. You know, it was pretty much all over within the first couple of years with, uh, with two main players, Apple and its iOS system. And, and uh, uh, for the most part, Samsung phones, uh, you know, centered around Android. Yeah. Uh, so you have, you know, rapid scalability is another telltale sign we're looking for. Uh, and then the third one, of course, is um, uh, the magnitude of the disruption and the potential threat to incumbent products or services. Uh, market share shifts away from incumbents to a new product or a service is really telling about the odds of success for the newcomer's ability to grow revenues, to grow profits, cash flows over time. Uh, of course, all factors that ultimately drive stock price appreciation. Um, and you know, when you, when you um, put an incumbent at risk uh, and you see these market shares shifting, uh, you know, it, it's really important to pay attention. And, and you, know, you could say we're starting to see those trends in, uh, in the mobility sector, uh, automotive sector with electric vehicles and this, grad, this shift towards uh, electric vehicle 
uh, propulsion, um, you know, and adoption is very, very significant. Uh, so time will tell. But, you know, again, we're looking for the magnitude of disruption, the threat to incumbents. More specifically on the tech stocks, uh, the fangs were up sharply this year, but they hit a setback in September. Was that just a blip or is that a sign of something else? Uh, where do you see opportunity outside big tech? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things to pull apart. Um, you know, when you when you say big tech, uh, the thing that comes to mind first and foremost is probably the fang stocks and yeah. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Um, you know, and those have been good performers this year. They did, did pull back recently. Um, but, you know, the, the September pullback wasn't just limited to those stocks. Uh, we, were, we saw a lot yeah. of technology stocks that had performed very well through uh, much of the first eight months uh, pullback anywhere from 10 to 20%, including some of the, of the what I would define loosely as smaller, not, not small cap, but smaller uh, capitalization, certainly relative to, uh, to you know, the FANG group, um, those pulled back as well, roughly 10 to 20%. So, yeah. you know, the, it was much more of a broad-based pullback in September. Um, that said, uh, much of that, uh, of that decline has already been made back, uh, really in the last three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that same group is now only down, uh, you know, five to 10 as opposed to the 10 to 20. Um, and I think, some of this was simply a, a, a little bit of a rotation in the marketplace. Sure. Uh, you know, when, when stocks as a group, uh, such as these technology stocks, go up uh, sharply over relatively short periods of time, uh, you are more at risk of some rotational uh, tendencies mm -hmm. in the marketplace, some profit taking. Um, but what we focus on and continue to focus on here is the underlying fundamentals of these businesses. So. Um, you know, what we're looking at at the moment is obviously now that we're into uh, the middle of October it is the beginning of the uh, earnings results, earnings reporting period yeah. for the third quarter. Uh, and I think, you know, performance from here in the short term for the next few months, uh, probably between now and the end of the year, is going to be ultimately driven by um, the commentary that is uh, provided in these earnings results, um, and especially management's view of their opportunity set as they look forward, not only for Q4, but into next year and beyond. The other thing I would, I would make a couple other comments. One is the significance of, of um, FANG, um, as well as, and I would add in the BAT group, uh, Baidu, yes. uh, Alibaba, and Tencent out of China, really that, that cluster which was really, really important and, and impactful to portfolios or you know, 18 months, two years, even, uh, even closing in on three years ago, is, uh, while not unimportant today, is um, less impactful. Uh, we're starting to see the next generation of technology emerge. Um, things around software, the cloud-based uh, capabilities that we've also been talking about um, that are starting to really take off. And, and I wouldn't say, um, supplant FANG and BAT, but certainly become more important in the marketplace uh, as stocks, uh, as uh, components of a portfolio. And so the overall impact of quote unquote big tech uh, is not as, as um, overpowering as it was in the past. And so there's really interesting mm -hmm. opportunities emerging. And what about Europe? Europe's interesting because, because Europe has a particular strength, uh, actually mm -hmm. in some of the consumer uh, sectors, Europe, you know, has a, has a long history and a phenomenal reputation in luxury stocks. 
Uh, luxury brands are things that, that cannot be created overnight. They take decades to create. So when you think about you know, the luxury industry, whether it's LVMH or Caring, which of course owns the Gucci brand among others, uh, when you think about Ferrari, when you think about Remy Cointreau, mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about uh, a whole range of luxury brands, they're often European. And so those are very interesting areas for us. They've been a little more challenged this past year because obviously uh, the physical shutdowns uh, of stores around the world and, and of travel uh, have put a little pressure on, on those sales, which tend to have more of a experiential buying process. Um, people prefer to go to a store to buy a luxury brand item. Um, but what's interesting here, of course, is that the propensity to purchase high-end goods remains very strong. Um, and as the economies around the world have gradually opened up over the course of late spring and summer, we've seen um, some really interesting recoveries in the sales trends of, of luxury brands. And month to month to month, they've been gradually gaining strength and, and returning and recovering. Tom, are growth opportunities in emerging markets hard to find? And why is an active management approach uh, in that area so vital? You know, they, they are a little harder to find, certainly in a growth environment or a growth focus, but, uh, but they're out there. Um, you know, emerging markets are traditionally thought to have a lot of exposure to things like energy, commodity resources. Um, there's some larger financial institutions in emerging markets and a wide array of state-owned enterprises, some of whom have, uh, you know, publicly listed shares, um, some localized customer consumer businesses out there. But, um, you know, nonetheless, if there are some very select technology-driven opportunities especially in China, uh, some e-commerce opportunities in, in both China and Latin America that are, are very significant, uh, you know, and even some interesting emerging uh, healthcare opportunities focused largely around pharmaceutical and biotech um, development uh, in parts of Asia. Uh, mm. So there, there are opportunities um, a little outside of the more traditional, um, traditional concentrations in, in, in many emerging market products. Um, you just have to look for them. And I, I, to your question on active management, uh, that's a good one because the, the beauty of the active management approach here is that you can ignore all those more traditional nondescript, um, you know, relatively unexciting or, or very traditional companies and focus, you know, really in on, on a very small number of outstanding opportunities in these uh, niche areas, um, you know, that are nonetheless growing very rapidly, taking, again, taking share, uh, you know, following many of, of the traits that we would otherwise look for. And, and um, you know, in an active portfolio, you can simply ignore the slower growing, uh, more commoditized or even politicized businesses. Um, if I look at the, the team we have that manages emerging market strategy for us, um, they do it in the exact same approach and mindset as we do in our flagship global and international strategies. I mean, they are looking for these unique potentially disruptive um, uh, and, and innovative companies offering new product cycles, addressing large unmet needs, um, and, and oftentimes supported by secular demand trends across very large addressable markets that just happen to be in the emerging markets. So, um, you know, the combination, the opportunity for growth exists by all means, and the, you know, in hand in hand with an active approach creates, uh, you know, a product set that, uh, that is really interesting and, and can be very powerful. Over the past months, investors started to look back at value stocks. Is value ever coming back? And how are lower negative rates impacting the growth uh, stocks versus value stocks? This is the, um, this is the question that has existed it's for the years. the question, now. yes. <laughs> it seems to be a favorite <laughs> question for everybody. 
Um, So first, let me say my own opinion, my own belief is that value and growth aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, The managers of each just have to be really good at their respective approaches. um, There are good value managers out there who have managed to navigate the last few years, even the last decade, quite successfully, even as growth as a style has been so powerful. So um, it's undoubtedly a little more difficult for them. Um, but if they're good at it, um, you know, it's not a and or situation. That said, uh, obviously, I'm a growth manager. And so um, I do come at this from a perspective of growth. And, and um, we're always thinking about what the future looks like, what the future holds. Secular innovative growth companies will in all likelihood continue to do very well in the coming years as innovation continues to offer new products, new services that make our lives better. Um, you know, many of the factors we've talked about you know, earlier, I mean, it's just uh, a long tailed trend um, being driven by new technology, new innovation. It's hard to see a scenario where innovation is, is crowded out. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much again, Tom, for joining us today. Great, appreciate your time. Thanks, Valentina. For professional investors only, all investments involve risk, including the possible loss of capital. The views expressed by PGM is not intended to constitute investment advice, were accurate at the time of recording, and are subject to change. References to specific securities and their issuers are for illustrative purposes only, and are not intended and should not be interpreted as recommendations to purchase or sell such securities. Issued by PGM Limited. PGM Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority of the United Kingdom, with firm reference number 193418. PGM Limited is authorized to provide services or operate with a passport in various jurisdictions in the EEA. Prudential Financial Incorporated of the United States is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, Incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MNG PLC, Incorporated in the United Kingdom.